Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by one of my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dries. Hello, Chris. Hi, Mark. Where's AWOL Marissa? Where is she? I think she's taking a well-deserved vacation. Oh, is that right? Okay, good for her. Okay, she deserves it. She certainly deserves it. I've had, I need a vacation, Chris. I need a vacation. I, I've had a, a very stressful week. It has nothing to do with the debt limit. It's like computer meltdowns everywhere. Oh, yeah. 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 It's like, I mean, I had a whole day without my computer. I, I haven't had that happen to me for 35 years. <laughs> it was it was really hard. Pretty it was really painful. Yeah. Well, uh, this podcast my, is like a vacation. So. It's kind of like a vacation. You know what happened to me this morning? I, my charger doesn't work. My my chart for some reason it broke and and so I'm sitting here I'm, I came down to Florida for a few days and I have no chart you know backup so I'm, so I'm running I see my power running down I go I have this podcast I have this podcast my run, my things running down so I send my wife out to Target and I said you got to you got to drop whatever you're doing go get me a charger so she gets me a charger she comes back it's one of these you know, uh, universal chargers, you know, and I couldn't, so I'm, I'm ripping it open because I'm literally running out of power. And you know how they have those little uh, charger knobs, you know, for each different computer. Oh yeah. Yeah. So when I was ripping it open, I it flies across. It, it flipped out and I didn't see it. I'm going, oh, honey, where's, I can't use this thing. So I was about ready to send her back out. And well, anyway, I'm I'm good. I've got I'm I'm set. But anyway, and we got a guest, Ben Ben Harris. Good to see you, Ben. Thanks. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. Well, have you had a better week than I have? Uh, you, well, I mean, I've got my chargers. Uh, you got that, your so chargers. I guess yeah. so. It's great to have Ben. Uh, ben is, um, is kind of sort of on vacation, right? I mean, you. You left uh, your position at Treasury a few weeks ago. You're, you were the Assistant Secretary of uh, Economic Policy, uh, and you, you left. And now you look really, you look actually look pretty good. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm not sure my wife would would agree with you. You know, I, I intended to be on vacation, but then all of the, you know, the debt limit impasse happened, and it's kept me just as busy as I was before. I mean, I testified up on the Hill a few days ago. On Wednesday, I gave a keynote address at an MBR uh, meeting yesterday, and I've just been doing a lot of discussions around the debt limit. So I haven't had the break that I anticipated, but um, and I know we're going to get this later on. My hope is that Congress reaches a deal with the White House, and uh, you know I can take a few more hours off each week. Yeah, and we are definitely coming back to that. And today, just to level set for everyone, is Friday, May twenty sixth. So uh, we're coming up on the X date here. Uh, because I know people will listen to this at different points in time. And uh, prior to uh, your treasury stint, and, and can I kind of ask, uh, what was kind of your broad remit as uh, Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at Treasury? So I had a very different role, uh, I think, than prior Assistant Secretaries. And there's a long history of really talented um, honestly, just brilliant assistant secretaries before me. I, I felt like I was just trying to play catch up and live up to their legacy. Uh, we had people like Rich Clarida served in that role. We had Jan Eberly, Karen Dynan, uh, Alan Kruger. Uh, actually, I had three former bosses work in that role. Uh, mm. So people of both parties, Phil Swagel, who's now CBO director, just terrific economist. 
Um, and so my remit was broader than usual in part because of how I, I came in. I mean, I came in a, as one of the few sort of close Biden advisors at treasury. So I had been Biden's chief economist when he was vice president and, and stayed in that role all the way through the election. I was the economic advisor for the campaign. I think similar to the role you played with Senator McCain's uh, campaign, Mark. Um, and so I, I kind of understood you know, where the president wanted to go with economic policy. We also had a bare bones staff. You know, the the prior administration had really uh, sort of gutted the career staff of the Treasury Department, particularly on the economic policy side. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not trying to come in with sort of this negative point, but like usually within economic policy, there are three deputies that's happened. They didn't hire any deputies for my role. Um, so I came into this this very, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of political appointees. We came in the middle of COVID. We we're working remotely. Uh, so when I came in, I was playing the role of speechwriter. Uh, hmm. the, the title, uh, assistant secretary for economic policy also is the chief economist, of the treasury department. So you're trying to think through all of the macroeconomic stress we had at that time. Um, I played a big role in the policy side of things. So much of 2021 for me was spent trying to get Build Back Better through Congress. Of course, uh, you know, in October, we got it through the House, and then we came up one vote short in the Senate. Um, and the other thing that was really interesting about my time at Treasury, which is atypical, which was that I played a big role in capping the price of Russian oil. Mm. And so usually people in my role, it's a purely domestic role, um, but in part because Jay Shambaugh hadn't been confirmed yet as Undersecretary for International Affairs, and in part because my team was doing a lot of the analysis around what was happening with the Russian oil trade, um, I spent you know a lot of 2022 after Russia invaded Ukraine thinking through this new, really novel sanctions regime. I made more trips to Europe than I could count. Uh, went with Secretary Yellen to Indonesia to the uh, G20 meeting. So I got kind of this very cool, different, um, different remit than, than I think is standard for people in that role. That is cool. I didn't know that you were uh, uh, one of the architects, if not the architect behind the price cap, oil price caps. Uh, congratulations. So, they seem to be working, right? I mean, is yeah, that it's it was such a ride. I mean, I, you know, it was a team. It was definitely a team effort. Liz Rosenberg at Treasury played a big role. I mean, obviously, the secretary and the deputy secretary. Uh, but it was, you know, it was kind of I, I, I play the role of sort of point person on this. And it was really interesting because it started actually before Russia even invaded Ukraine. And, you know, we, we had rumblings. We knew this, this could happen. And NSC had asked us to do some analysis, some economic analysis as far as what it could look like for markets. And we initially were worried uh, that what, what, what happened to European gas markets would happen to world oil markets was that you know Russia, Russia would effectively weaponize not just natural gas, but also oil, crude oil and refined product. But then we realized Russia doesn't really have the leverage to do this. Russia needs this revenue. Uh, this is not a well-diversified economy. They're fighting a war. They have a war chest, but they might blow through it. And we kind of realized even before the invasion that we actually have some leverage here. Uh, and then what happened in June of the 2022 is that Europe went ahead and put in place what it was the six sanctions package. And part of the six sanctions package effectively said that Western companies 
you know, Europe moved first, the, Europe, the US would have likely joined them, was that Western companies couldn't participate in the oil trade. And the reason that we were concerned was because there's so many Greek tankers that carry Russian ships. There were so many uh, insurance companies from the UK that insured ships that carried Russian oil. And so our worry was, look, I mean, this is a really well-intentioned sanction designed to reduce revenue. But what might happen is that you could have oil at $150 a barrel. We could kick off a global recession because you're getting so much oil shut in into Russia. And so we wanted we wanted a tweak to the six sanctions package. And the tweak was, look, you can still carry Russian oil if you're a Greek tanker. You can still insure it if you're an insurance company based in the UK. You can still finance it if you're an American bank but you can only do so if it's below a certain price. And I, I cannot tell you how many people told me that I was an idiot personally yeah. on Twitter, called out the Treasury Department, called out the Biden administration. You don't know how commodity markets work. Um, you know, we went the first time we went to Europe. Uh, I don't think that they're terribly enthusiastic about it in, in certain countries, um, but it worked. And you have people like Dan Urigan, who's just a force in these markets has come out and yeah. said, no, it is working. And um, and it is working. It is driving down Russian Russian revenues from the oil trade. Global markets are stable. I mean, this is great. We have a landmark war in Europe involving a supplier of of oil that supplies roughly ten percent of the global oil, and the markets are incredibly stable right now. And Russian revenue is falling through the floor. I mean, it's not you know it's not like it's completely dried up, but that wasn't an option. We needed them to still trade the oil. We just need to do it really cheaply. And so we have kind of pulled this off. Um, we've done it in an incredibly coordinated way. The G7 joined us. Uh, the Europeans became our colleagues on this. And actually, you know, it got to the point where we spent so much time working with our G7 colleagues, largely over Zoom, that when we saw them in person, we actually would hug each other. Yeah. You know, and so it was also, I think, uh, a move that reinforces solidarity uh, amongst the G7 against this sort of aggressive, act, act, aggressive action that Russia took. So I think it was a really powerful move. And it's, it's honestly, if I look back over my career, uh, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, I was just looking at a chart, believe it or not, uh, I had to give, give a presentation to a big global bank this morning, and we were talking about oil, and threw up a chart of Russian exports of oil. And it's no, it's the same today as it was the day before Russia invaded, uh, obviously, who's buying oil has shifted. The European Union is buying. We're not buying anything. And it's all going to India and China and some others, unknowns. But yet the revenues that Russia is getting is much, much lower because of the price cap. It's really in incredible. And I, I, I didn't I didn't I didn't say I wasn't the guy saying nasty tweets, Ben. I, I wasn't doing that, but I was. I was definitely skeptical of the whole thing. <laughs> I, did, I go, really? How's that going to work? But it's working. It's been pretty amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we may have kicked off a whole new way to do sanctions now. We'll yeah. see. I mean, it, it, it is novel, if nothing else. So let me ask before we move on, and we're going to talk about the debt limit. And I do want to talk about a couple of other things you worked on. Uh, you, one is on uh, what, what you call modern supply side theory. And then also uh, you wrote a book with uh, Martin Bailey, is Martin is, uh, is Martin? He was formerly at Brookings. Is he still Brookings? Uh, yeah, he's still affiliated with Brookings. Yep, yeah, still affiliated with Brookings. And uh, on re on retirement uh, and how to address uh, our uh, all the issues with regard to the increasing number of people in retirement. Uh, 
But uh, before we do that, how did you become chief economist for uh, uh, President Biden? How'd that happen? So I had been uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors, first under Austin Goolsby, and then Alan Kruger. And uh, I got along really well with both of them. I mean, I have tr- you know tremendous respect for, for both of them. I mean, Alan, of course, tragically passed away uh, yeah. several years ago. But um, uh, actually, I didn't know how I got the job. And I was called, uh, I was actually out with former Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin out in, in Stanford. We're doing an event on water rights, of all things. And, uh, and I got a call from Steve Reschetti, who had been the chief of staff at the time. And he said, do you want to come in and interview for this job? And I mean, the answer was, of course, yes. And so I came in and really hit it off with President Biden. And they offered me the job, not quite on the spot, but after a couple of days. And so I spent the last two years of the Biden administration with him and, and formed, I thought, you know, really nice working relationship. Um, I really enjoyed being his, his chief economist. But I never really knew, this is sort of a sad story. So I never really knew how I had been uh, nominated for that job. And it had been uh, sometime in 2017 or 2018, there was an event at the State Theater, which is in Falls Church, where former Obama administration folks got together. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know who paid for it. I think it might, I think, you know, maybe Jeff Zions had sort of rented it out or someone. Um, and we all came together and Alan Kruger was there and I was talking with Alan. I was so happy to see him. And he said, well, you know how you got the job with Vice, Vice President Biden? I said, no. He said, well, I, I called him and told me he had to hire you. Hmm. And I was so thankful. So I had like, you know, my to-do list. I had send Alan a bottle of bourbon to say thank you. And then, and then he passed away and I never had a oh. chance to, to do that. Uh, but for me, you know, the fact that I got to serve in a role that he served in and I really just tried to honestly tried to honor him. That was my way uh you know honor his legacy so that's why i got nominated yeah he, alan was such a nice man he, yeah he was like a, a couple of our conferences and uh i remember going to washington he'd show me around he was so proud of his office when he was chair of the ceo <laughs> look at the view i have mark it's like <laughs> it was he was very he's so he was so nice and so brilliant such a brilliant man such yeah. a brilliant man yeah uh well uh great well that's that's good background uh, let's um Let's dive into the uh, topic uh, that's top of mind, and that's the the debt limit. So uh, it feels like we got some good news, sort of, over the last 24 hours. There was a press report at the uh, New York Times. I saw something in the Post saying that uh, there might be a deal coming together here. Um, you want to describe? I, I know you've followed this very carefully. Maybe you can describe what the deal well, the reported deal is and what you think of it and how do you handicap this actually getting across the finish line before the so-called X date? Yeah. So let's start by talking about what actually made it through the House uh, a couple of weeks ago. So what made it through the House was they raised the the debt ceiling, but likely only through March of next year. So not through the election. That was part one. Part two was really steep cuts in discretionary spending. Now they weren't specified. These were just caps on discretionary spending for the next 10 years. On the whole, the bill cut deficits by 4.8 trillion, which is a really big number, but most of it were through these caps on discretionary spending. Uh, So of that 4.8 trillion, 3.2 trillion came from the caps. Uh, They would completely decimated discretionary spending. 
Um, another trillion or so came from two different items. One was a rollback in the student loan forgiveness program. And the second was a rollback in the clean energy tax credits that were passed through the Inflation Reduction Act. So those two things made up another trillion or so. So that gets you to 4.2 trillion. And then the remainder was, was essentially uh, savings on interest. And then you also had this trade of about 120 billion where uh, the Republican bill saved 120 billion through extending work requirements on Medicaid, food stamps, and TANF, but then lost another 120 billion by rolling back uh, the higher funding for the IRS. And so, okay, so that's what they passed through the House. And then what's what's the deal that uh, the New York Times reporter Jim Tankersley reported? Um, I should say this isn't public. So this is, you know, it's not like they, I mean, it's public in the sense it was reported by Tankersley, but they didn't come out there. I haven't seen a statement. And it has a few different elements. One is extending the debt limit past the election, which was, I think, a necessary condition for the administration. You couldn't have it expire prior to the election. The second thing was just two years of caps rather than 10. And you have defense spending and spending on veterans grow at the level that President Biden had proposed. And then you basically, after you, after you talk about certain sort of accounting issues, you basically have like flat spending in 2024 for non-defense, non-veterans, discretionary spending. And then it grows by, then both grow by about 1%. So a cut in real terms and in inflation adjusted terms in 2025. Uh, then you also have of the 80 billion in extra IRS funding, which was put through by the Inflation Reduction Act, you pair back 10 billion of that, so about 12 percent. And then uh, and, and then I think I've heard other people speculate uh, that work requirements need to be worked out. I mean, I was texting with Tankersley last night about this and asking him, it seems like this is reported in the New York Times that it seems like work requirements and permitting may or may not be on the table and those details are still being hammered out. So, you know, relative to this big $4.8 trillion deficit reduction bill that the House passed, this is pretty small. And so you asked me to handicap it. I mean, there's no way, there's no way that I think you're getting a big part of the more extreme version uh, of the House voting for this. I mean, it's just this, this doesn't feel like a win for them. For any sort of moderate, I think it feels like a big win. And for those that have businesses in their district that are really concerned about what the cuts might mean, perhaps that's also a win. Um, I think the pressure from businesses has come not in the public as it has in the past, but more behind the scenes. Uh, you know, I think you'll get some Democratic votes. If there are work requirements included, I think you're losing a decent share of the Democratic caucus. They just they, they can't vote for work requirements for Medicaid. Um, but in general, I think you're going to see basically, you know, 100 votes from each party come together and pass this to the House. I think the Senate will sail through the Senate. The Senate understands the consequences of the debt limit impasse in ways the House does not. Um, but I'm not sure that, that this is done. You know, I'm not sure that McCarthy can get this through his caucus. And so, you, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It feels it doesn't it doesn't feel like it, it gives the the conservative Republicans, the Freedom Caucus enough to really, they're not going to, well, maybe I guess McCarthy's figuring that he's not going to get their vote anyway for almost anything. And so if he, 
and he can't, he's got to get something through the house eventually, right? So if that's the calculation, then maybe just try to get enough votes in the middle uh, on both sides and you get this done. Maybe that's the calculation. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of where I thought we would end up, but I didn't think we'd end up, I didn't think it would happen this way. Yeah. I thought we would see a market freak out like we did in 2011. Yeah. I thought we might see a decline in equities of about 10%. I thought we might see credit markets uh, exhibit more stress than they have. I mean, we are seeing points of stress, as you know, but it's it's nothing like 2011. And so this is kind of the deal I think you get on June 6th, maybe. Right. Uh, May 25th. Right, right. Okay, so you're you're feels like you're you're saying, okay, great, this sounds good. I'll take it, but uh, let's just see how this plays out. I'm not so sure. This may be a head fake. It may be a head fake. I mean, I don't love what it does to non-defense discretionary. It's not a catastrophe, but it's not great. And if we get work requirements included, I mean, you know, it's a pretty small. You know, work requirements raised about 120 billion in the original bill, but I don't see how you're going to get the Democratic votes you need if you include work requirements for Medicaid. So you're talking about TANF and SNAP. Yeah. Um, you know, for the people who are affected, which I think are older, it will likely just be an extension in the, of the work requirements that are already in place. So we're talking about older workers being subject. It's not like there are no work requirements in these programs. It's, it's just a slight extension of the work requirements that are in there. Uh, you know, for those people, there's real cost to this, but so I don't love this, but if this, and I also, I, I, honestly, fundamentally, I don't love negotiating over debt limits just as a principle. Like I worry about a lot what this means in two years. Does this mean that who's ever in the white house has to give up all of these, uh, legislative gains? I mean, is this what we do now? And, you know, I think when we had in 2011, just to remember what happened in 2011, you had a similar situation. But in 2013, we got to another debt limit impasse, and uh, it was not politically advantageous for uh, the House at that point. President Obama was in the White House. Republicans had the House. It was not politically advantageous of them to engage in another set of negotiations. And I think because there was debt limit fatigue. Uh, I mean, they tried, but they didn't end up getting a deal, and they ultimately ended up raising the debt limit. So my hope is the country... I mean, maybe we do this once every 10 years. Maybe that's the lesson. But I worry a lot about policy uncertainty if we have these uh, this hostage taking every two years. Yeah, it, uh, I, I'm actually debating someone from Cato this afternoon. They have this, uh, I don't know if you've ever done Intelligence Squared, the debates. Uh, they, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah. If you like debates. Uh, and I'm three and oh, so I really, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm debating and the debate is, should the uh, debt limit be abolished? Uh, and uh, the, I think the argument, and I don't know what she's going to say, but my guess is the argument is that, well, this is the only way we get real fiscal reform is through this process where we go through the drama and come right down to the wire and there's a deal. How how would you respond to that? I mean, because the argument against uh, the argument for abolishing, in my mind, is pretty clear, and you expressed it nicely. I mean, this is the drama creates uh, all kinds of uncertainty, weighs on the economy. You know, if we ever breached, it would we can go talk about that, but that would the economic cost would be very serious. And at the end of the day, we, in my view, is we don't really accomplish a whole lot. Uh, you know, it's on the margin. We're not solving any long term fiscal problems, and you can't. Given that you have a few days, a few weeks in the cauldron uh, of, 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 a, of, a, of a debt limit drama, but her her argument might be 
and I'm, as you can see, I'm prepping for this this uh, this debate. <laughs> the the uh, the argument might be, well, this is the only way we get things done. You know, we get Budget Control Act of 2011. The, what was it, the Enforcement Act of 1990? How, how would you respond to that? Well, I think the proof is in the outcome here. And our long-term fiscal problems, which, and we do have long-term fiscal problems, it's not non-defense discretionary spending and work requirements. So if your argument is, this is how we solve problems, and yet we've just gone through all of this and really get no solution at all, I don't see how that argument holds water. I mean, what we would really need, we need to come together and we need to address health spending in particular. We need to have higher revenues. Revenues were not part of this. And, it, and in fact, by cutting the IRS spending, it was only a little bit, we actually will probably end up with less revenues than we would have had before. So if you, if you sort of accept that any big fiscal resolution needs to include something on entitlements and needs to include something on revenues, we got neither in this package. So I don't really see how you can argue that this is how you get to, get to the, the necessary outcome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, going back to the, uh, the current debt limit battle, uh, one thing that, uh, that I've been perplexed by and you mentioned it is the lack of kind of any reactions. I mean, you know, I would have thought at this point in the in the drama, the fact that the X date's coming up here in a week or two, we'd see more of a reaction from investors. There's some reaction. I mean, one month Treasury yields are higher than uh, than they typically are because of some concern about investors about getting paid on the other side of the X date. Uh, CDS spreads are up, but you know, broadly speaking, the stock market's fine. You know, it's show no sign of any uh, ill effect from the drama. I don't I don't get the sense that business people, the trade groups or anyone else is pounding on lawmakers' doors and saying, hey, do something. Why do you do I am I characterizing things correctly? And if so, you know what what do you think is going on here? So on the reaction from the business community, I felt like in 2021, uh, and I spent a lot of time working with Treasury and White House colleagues, um, on this, when we got that resolution, I felt like that the turning point was when President Biden and Secretary Yellen went on TV with Jamie Dimon, Jane Frazier, the CEO of Raytheon, and the CEO of uh, ARP, Joanne Jenkins. These are people who don't usually dip their toe in political waters. And they went on television in a very public way with the president and the Treasury Secretary and said, look, you know, you... Uh, then it was it was in the Senate. It was uh, Leader McConnell. You're you're really causing problems in the in the business community right now. You guys should knock this off. And that was a bad look for uh, Senate Republicans having such a public display from business leaders. And we we got a resolution pretty quickly afterwards. Business leaders have been quieter this time, but I don't think that means they've been silent. I think they've been. Uh, using back channel routes, as, as far as what I've been told, you know, they're, they're calling these, they're calling the, the members, they're just not making public statements. But the business community can play a real role in making sure this doesn't happen again. A, public statements are really important. And B, I mean, the irony is, is that you kind of need a market reaction. Uh, and we sort of talked about this earlier to show how bad it would be going over the X state. And so I'm never rooting for stress in markets, but uh, it would have, you know, I do think that some stress would would help reach a resolution. I mean, the way that I would characterize stress to date is it's been really minor. As you mentioned, there have been some treasury auctions. 
Uh, we saw the highest rate for uh, issuance on a 28-day bond, um, but it wasn't that high. I mean, it was I think you know 5.8% or something, and and that's that's an annualized rate, and that you know over a course of a month, it's really kind of mostly inconsequential. You didn't see a ton in the secondary market. Uh, people seem to be really confident that coupon payments would still be made. I think one of the reasons, there are two reasons why I think markets didn't didn't really freak out. The first is that I think there's a faith that there would be some resolution reached. And they would be right if you looked at the historical record. I mean, we always reach a resolution for the X state. The second was a notion that, and I think this was a little bit mistaken, and I've been honest with the financial sector, I've had a lot of conversations with them about this. There's this notion largely based on this 2013 transcript that was a meeting at the Fed when Bernanke was chair. And they're talking, it was kind of a retrospective as far as what happened in 2011. And the Fed was looking forward and saying, what are our options? And there was this memo written by uh, these Fed staffers, uh, I think it was Bill English and Simon Potter, as far as 10 different actions the Fed could take if we went over the X state. And as part of that conversation, they referenced some thinking that Treasury had been doing around 2011 as far as how they would handle payments. And I think the financial sector looked at that transcript and said, oh, Treasury will just prioritize, they'll firewall PI, uh, look, the, you know, the Fed discussed it, and we'll, we'll make due on payments. And my point has been that was a 2013 Fed talking about their interpretation of what Treasury would do two administrations ago. And this is really, there's only one person who knows how they would handle prioritization, and that's Joe Biden. I mean, that's a, that's a POTUS level call uh, about whether or not you're gonna choose to make P&I payments or social security payments. And, uh, you know, that was, so Biden but, has- But, ben, but then, let me push back a little bit. Yeah. Because I find it, Un, very unlikely that if we actually breached, that the Treasury would not pay bondholders first. I mean, they had the technical ability to do it, right? There's a, the Fed wire payment system separate from the payment system used for paying other bills. So it's not like there's an inability to do it. They can, Treasury can do it. Because if Treasury doesn't do it, that would be immediate, in my mind, chaos, right? Because You'd get credit rating downgrades, and, I, and that's what the credit rating agencies are saying they're going to do. I, uh, they'll do that. And then you get downgrades across all the other entities that are backstopped by the federal government, implicit or explicit. Think JP Morgan Chase, Federal Home Loan Banks, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, municipalities. It, you know, we descend into chaos like immediately, it seems to me. It hard. I have a hard time thinking that Treasury would do that. Am I? Am I just wrong about it? Well, it, but my point is, is it's not Treasury's call. No, it's of course, president. of course. But okay, the Secretary Yellen calls up President, or the President calls up Secretary, and say, "Hey, what are we? What should we do here?" He's not. Do you think he's going to say, "Don't pay the bondholders"? Let it well, go. one thing that was sort of fortunate about this particular impasse was that the way that Social Security and coupon payments were scheduled. It didn't. It doesn't seem like they're really in the crosshairs. Uh, the big Social Security payment for old age beneficiaries goes out for the on the second Wednesday of every month, which is June fourteenth. But you could imagine a situation where you have a big coupon payment and a big Social Security payment falling on the same day. You know, just because that's oh. how they line up. Okay. And what does the president do? 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, just as implausible as not paying bondholders is not paying Social Security beneficiaries. Oh, okay, okay. I, I guess. I mean, that's interesting. You're right. That is an interesting uh, uh, scenario if that were to happen. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, well, well, let me ask you this. And Chris, I'm, I'm going to stop and let you ask Pepper Ben with the questions here too. But uh, am I right, or or do you think? Uh, my characterization of what would happen if we didn't pay bondholders, you know, complete chaos. Is that, is that, would you, do you think that I have that correct or do I, am I wrong about that? Well, I think it's certainly in the realm. I think it's, it's likely, but not certain. I mean, it's, it's been a little, I mean, there, there's, there's a world in which bondholders start to bifurcate bonds by those that are in the crosshairs and those that aren't. Mm-hmm. And so if you think with certainty this will get resolved in a month, if there's a bond with a coupon payment in April or May, I mean, you're good. Mm-hmm. And so what I was worried about was we start having these toxic bonds based on when the coupon payments were scheduled. And so, uh, and you know, would the Fed come in and, and provide liquidity and swap out those bond payments that have coupon payments in the summer with those that don't? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, would that happen? The other thing that I think people discount too much is the potential for a failed auction. So the Fed has all these regularly scaled, not the Fed, the Treasury has all these regularly scheduled auctions. They go off in incredibly smooth ways. These are pros who do this. You have these big primary dealers, these big banks that are bidding on them, but then you also have non-banks that bid on them. Uh, banks are supposed to bid their share. So you've got roughly 24 primary dealers and each is supposed to bid around 4% of the amount that Treasury wants to auction. So, uh, you know, if Treasury wants to auction $100 billion, they basically say from the primary dealers, look, we expect that you're going to put in bids for $4 billion or so uh, of this amount. Um, and then you get bids from others. And so usually you get... Uh, I don't know, roughly 200 or so percent of the bids for the amount you want to auction. So if you're auctioning off 100 billion, you get bids totaling around, I don't know, 200 billion or so with, with some variance. But we've had circumstances, even going back to the great financial crisis, when primary dealers did not bid their pro rata share. Some of them didn't. And it looked like we, I mean, we flew a little close to the sun on some of this, where we didn't get we only got a little, we only cleared the amount that we needed in bids by just by just some. I don't know exactly how much, but maybe if Treasury is auctioning $100 billion, maybe we only got $110 billion in bids. Now, if you don't get that full $100 billion, the auction doesn't happen. Hmm. It's, it's not like you get 90 in bids, you just, you know, you sell 90 billion, you sell zero. And if we get a failed auction, even one, it's like it's like game over because we can't, then there's no money coming in to make any payments. And then you might not even be able to make coupon payments. Yeah. And so this is all, it's very precarious. Yeah. And I think the bond markets has had a little too much confidence and it's all working out. Uh, you know, bond market's usually right. So I'm probably the one who's wrong here, but I've been a little perplexed by, uh, by how much confidence there's been. That's interesting. Well, I, you know, I like I'm Moody's the bond market and I've been always under the, maybe the false impression that, at least initially, you pay the bondholders. I guess the other issue is, okay, the Treasury pays the bondholders. That means everyone else is going to sue, right? Because 
like, like, why are they getting the money before me? Yeah. Forget yeah. about the politics of it, just the, you know, it's legal aspects of it. And that by itself is going to create all kinds of, it's, it's not like there's any easy solution here. Prioritization doesn't solve any problems. I'm not arguing that, but boy, not paying the bondholders up front would be, that would be chaos. The economy would evaporate very quickly. Yeah, but anyway. I agree with you. Um, I do want to get to the game, but Chris, uh, any other questions on the uh, debt limit that you wanted to pose? I'm, I'm sorry, I've been um, yeah, no, I, I would just say so. It sounds like we're in the dark side here. So what about the uh, alternative uh, approaches, 14th Amendment, platinum coin? Do you have any views on how those play out or enter into the calculus here? If, if indeed we really go down to the to the wire? So I think in general, you have two different categories of alternative measures. We need we need a word for them. We've got this great term, extraordinary measures, but that refers to something different. Um, and so I think you have two categories. The first are measures that effectively abandon the debt limit. And so citing the 14th Amendment, using a trillion dollar coin or depositing at the Fed, um, those are pretty unlikely. I think of, of all of those, the 14th Amendment is probably the most likely. Uh, but I think it's, if they're problematic in part, because it doesn't really solve your problem. I mean, it allows you in the short term to continue making payments, I guess, but every auction that was performed after you have cited the 14th amendment would be done under this cloud of legal uncertainty. And I don't know what the interest rates look like on a bond that was purchased. Uh, you know, you know, there's going to be a legal issue coming down the road. Um, I think the chances of a failed auction are very high in that circumstance, and it doesn't really solve the problem. Then you have this other class of measures that are things like selling gold bars in order to raise some cash to get a little bit further. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't basically absolve us of the debt limit, but what it does is it helps us get to a, a date where we can kind of deal with it uh, with some more time. And so in the current impasse, it's, it's interesting because it's not like there's an X date and then everything is awful for forever. If you get to June 14th, then we start getting these estimated tax payments coming in because yeah. June 15th is, is the date for uh, the quarterly estimated tax payments. And that revenue should get you definitely to the end of June. And then we have another big extraordinary measure where we can use a government pension. Accounting games are typically played. Uh, to create about $145 billion in headroom. So between this extra revenue and this extra story and measure at the end of June, this gets us well into July. And if the theory of the case is, look, debt limit fatigue provides Democrats with a bit more leverage, I think it is interesting to think through Treasury maybe taking some extra story measures to get our country past this June 14th, June 15th date. Um, and I'm not sure that's totally off the table at this point. I mean, I think that you've got folks who are just trying to present options uh, to decision makers in the White House. And so when people are like, well, are you going to invoke the 14th Amendment? It's like, uh, that's a question for President Biden. And to my knowledge, he hasn't made that decision yet. In part, it depends on like what what House Republicans are demanding. So like, are we going to cite the 14th Amendment you know, if we get, I mean, again, I can't climb into Joe Biden's brain. I don't know. But uh, what would the president Anyone can, do? you can, Ben. You can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on what his alternative is. And we don't know. Is it is it the bill that passed the House or is it the compromise that the New York Times reported? Um, we just don't know at this point. 
Well, that's great. It's 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 from a you know a mountaintop perspective on the whole thing. It's so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing is just on every level. It's just, I mean, it's scary and it's very uncomfortable. But I mean, just the the economics of this, the politics of it, uh, all the moving parts, the legal aspects. It's just an incredible thing actually um yeah it's it's great drama if great drama that's what if it is. the consequences right. weren't so high but yeah, i guess exactly. maybe high consequences makes for great drama so yeah yeah you yeah. go figure hey let's play the game the statistics game uh and uh the game is uh, we each pick a statistic and we're trying to break this up you know the, break this up a little bit because it's been pretty heavy and we're going to get back to some more heavy topics in a minute uh, but Break it up a little bit. Uh, we each pick a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through uh, questions and clues, deductive reasoning. The best uh, stat is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately. You got to watch, and Ben, you got to watch out for Chris. He's very fast on the draw. So, you know, he's, he's, he's really good. <laughs> and not so hard that we never get it, but that happens, to be honest. And, uh, if it's apropos to the topic at hand, all the better. So, and we've got a lot of topics at hand, some of which we haven't gotten to. So uh, that gives us a broad remit. So uh, uh, I'll go with you, Chris. I mean, Marissa is usually tradition has it, but you know, she's AWOL. So uh, we'll, I'll go, we'll go with you first, Chris. Yeah, yeah I'm the substitute. Um, so I have a triplet for you. Uh-oh. Uh, so positive 1.3%. Okay. Minus 2.3%. And then... Negative uh, 0.5%. Oh my gosh. This should be really easy. I'm afraid it's too easy for you. But is it related to the, it feels like the economic data that came out this today. week? The GDI? Yep. GDI is one of them. You got yeah, it. So this is GDI, GDP, and then the combination of the two. The average. Exactly. You got it. I, oh, Ben, oh. gosh darn it. He beat me to it. <laughs> oh my God. That is unbelievable. Okay. Explain. So GDP 1.3%, uh, yeah. perhaps weak, but positive, right? So right. one way to calculate. It got revised up a little bit, didn't it? I think. Uh, it was 1.1 one, one to 1.3. One, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, GDI, which is our alternative approach to measuring alpha. We've discussed this in, in previous Gross contracts. domestic income, right? Yep. Yep. So kind of all the income uh, that, that's reported. Well, that was down 2.3%. Yeah. yeah. Right, so negative. And then the... The average, which we view as perhaps a more stable, more accurate depiction of what reality is, you know, also down 0.5%. And that is the second consecutive quarter of negative really? output growth. Right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of GDI? It's well, GDI was down 3.2%. I mean, the average you're saying is down. The average was down as well. Right? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, for two quarters in a row. Yeah. Okay. So, so are we in a recession? Yeah, what are you saying? Well, that's buddy? the question. Last year, right, we were we pointed at the GDI because it was telling us different signals. Oh, no recession. Um, now, though, we have t- these two consecutive quarters of GDI. Uh, should we be uh, concerned here? Is that GDP number going to get revised down? That's well, a- what's your answer? Uh, concern. I think they're slowing, uh, clearly. Yeah. I don't, but... Are we in recession yeah. right now? No, I don't. I, yeah. The other signals don't. We're don't still creating 250,000 jobs a month. How can Correct. that do I, I don't know. Yeah. Consumption's hurt. on fire. Yeah. Labor market is red hot. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but we're contracting. It's it's a very peculiar situation. Yeah. Um, I agree. 
Well, a big part of the weight was just reduction of inventory, right? Or less. Well, actually, inventory has actually declined, I believe. Declined. Yeah. Yeah. Next so, question. On GDP, that's subtracted over two percentage points. So, you know, sets us up for a little bit of growth in in Q in the current quarter in Q uh, Q two. Uh, but uh, that's that was a good one, Chris. A very good one. Ben, do you want to go next? I I do, uh, but I will say I didn't. I didn't pick one that was necessarily pertinent to today's conversation, but I'll give it to you. Anyway. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Very far okay. away. Uh, you'll probably get this right away. I maybe made it too easy, but uh, four point seven percent. Four point seven. Oh, is that? Uh, well, that's the uh, core uh, consumer expenditure deflator inflation year over year. Is four point seven percent. That's so that's. That's not the one I was thinking of. <laughs> but good but it is. I'm telling you, it's 4.7%. It I'm yeah. pretty sure. I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure. Core, didn't it? Isn't that, am yeah. I right, Chris? Core PCE was 4. Core PCE, which, by the way, makes me nervous. But we'll come, we can come back to that. It but that's not, had in not mind. a great print today. Okay, that's not what you had in mind. Is, no. it, is it an economic statistic? It's an economic statistic. Okay. Did it come out this week or recently? It is the most recent. It describes the current situation. So it's the most recent release, but didn't come out this week. Okay. Okay. Oh, interesting. Is it a government statistic? Yes. Okay. Uh, and is it uh, inflation related? No. Is it labor market related? Yes. Okay. Um, ECI, no. Yeah. Is it average hourly earnings growth? Is- 4.7%. That's probably 4.7%. You come with a lot of 4.7, but this is again not the one I'm thinking of. Oh, okay, but you said close. You said close. The four, average hourly earnings, is that? Oh, no, it's not related to, to earnings. It's not related to earnings. Okay, it's in the labor market, though. Uh, interesting. Uh, uh, well, it's. I'm thinking job. Is it, is it, can't, is it job? Is it? I don't is a job growth related somehow? Uh it's not related to job to 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 growth in payrolls. It's from the household survey. Oh. Is it the growth in household employment year over year? Percent change? Uh, no. No. Uh can't be labor force. Uh what what do you what do you, uh, Can I give you a hint? Oh, is it like is it like unemployment rate for some yes. demographic? Like black is it black? Yes. Right? Oh, okay. Yes, you got oh, it. oh, okay. Okay, very good. That's that a good, good one. Yeah. Well, see that oh was that, that was not as graceful as I would have liked, but we got there. But you got there. And I, I will say, I mean, the reason why I picked that one was during the campaign, we were giving then candidate Biden, uh, you know, regular economic updates every week or so, twice a week. Uh, it was a rotating cast, but usually Jared Bernstein and Heather Boucher were on, and there were a few other folks that should join. And I remember, uh, I remember this very well because my family had rented an RV, my wife and I and our three daughters, because we just had to get out of the house and we're driving across the country. So I'm like sitting in the back at the table advising President Biden with their dog barking and our kids on iPads. And the in May of 2020, the black unemployment rate was 16.8%. Wow. And now that's not a high, but like it's it's kind of a high for me as an adult. I mean, and and we were so worried that the president 
well, we were you know hopeful that Biden would become president, but we're worried that he would come into the presidency in the middle of something that looked like the Great Depression, you know, not even the Great Recession. We're, we're talking about, you know, the late 1920s. And when you have a fifth of people in a certain demographic that are unemployed, I mean, that's what we're worried about. It was, I mean, 16.8% is bad, 25% is much worse. Um, and that here we are today with 3.5% unemployment overall, 4.7%, a low for Black unemployment historically, you know, far below the historical average. Uh, it just, you know, feels very fortuitous and it could have been very different. Yeah, that's an amazing statistic. Really, really uh, shows the uh, uh, strength of the labor market. I mean, just incredible strength and resilience. And that goes back to my fundamental reason for optimism. I mean, hard to imagine you go in recession. I mean, layoffs are so low and and the business is so reluctant to, to re- reduce their payrolls. It's just Without that, it's hard to see a recession. But but anyway, uh, but four point seven percent. Chris would point out four point seven percent core C, uh, PCE uh, inflation. That that's a problem too. Okay, okay. I got a statistic, and this is related. I'm going to give you a big hint right up front. This is related to the topic that we're going to go to in a few minutes on uh, retirement security, uh, and. Uh, I'm giving you a hint because this could be a little difficult. The the statistic is 23.6%. 23.6%. It's labor market related. It goes to the uh, discussion around retirement issues. Is it related to retirement accounts? No. It's a, it's a, it's the labor market related. Is it a participation rate? Or? It is a participation rate. 65 or, plus. Oh my God! He's on. See what I tell you, Ben. This unbelievable. Is that is. I'm telling you, isn't that unbelievable? Yes. I give, I give him too much of a hint. So the 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 um, the participation rate for people 65 years and over is 23.6 percent. That's a, as of April. Pre-pandemic, it was 26 percent. 26 percent. So that kind of gives you a sense of the decline in participation by uh, older Americans. And, you know, of course, the overall participation rate is down, but, you know, right now it's only down by, I don't know, six, seven tenths of a percent, you know, not, not this. So one of the reasons why participation hasn't come back is older Americans have left the workforce uh, in, in, and they're not coming back. The participation rate has not come back. And that, that's a real, that's going to be a real problem going forward. Um, that's a good one. If you go back a bit further, though, go to back to like 2015. It's actually where it's 23. It's right around where it is today. So yeah, is the anomaly actually today that it's so low or was 2019 just a... No, I think though that just reflects boomers because 65 and over is a big cohort, right? And the participation rates fall very rapidly when you're over 65. And then because you have all these boomers coming in, their participation rate, because you're at 65, 66, 67, you you know, it's going to push up your participation rate. So that... In fact, the fact that it's down even more now is understating how big a deal this is because it should be steadily rising. The trend should be steadily rising because all those boomers coming into that age cohort. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just a, some arithmetic. You know, uh, but, uh, in, but in addition to, to higher participation within an age category. So, I mean, I agree with yeah. your assessment as well. I mean, we just expect people 
you know, 70 to 75 to be have higher participation rates conditional on how many of those people are in the economy. Um, I mean, we just, you know, in particular with with Zoom and, and other ways that make it easier to get into the labor market. I mean, I think the BLS projections show higher age specific participation rates over time as well. Yeah. Hey, this is a good time. Then let's let's dive into your book. Tell me tell me about your book and uh, and what I'm a little curious about the backstory, how you teamed up with Martin Bailey and and why you wrote the book. And, um, you know, just the, anything, any context you can provide would be great. So, Martin. I mean, you know, I, I sort of came up in economics in the 1990s, and anyone, uh, particularly if you're sort of more affiliated with the Democratic Party, and Martin Bailey was chair of CEA. I mean, he's this like titan uh, in economic policy. Um, and we had received a bunch of grants to do work around retirement policy when I was at the Kellogg School of Management out at Northwestern. He was at Brookings. And we put together all these different proposals, and we commissioned different proposals from various economists um around retirement security we did a bunch around working longer which is pertinent to our discussion we just had we had a bunch around annuities um reverse mortgages long-term care and then we decided look we've got a lot of good material here let's just put it into a book but the the crystallizing idea behind the book was this was that we've got a retirement system in this country which needs it needs to be fixed. We never described it as catastrophic. There's a lot of good things about a retirement system. Some people come in and say, oh, it's entirely broken. We need to redo the whole thing. Our point was, look, it works really well for some people. It works kind of poorly for others. But the fundamental system is A, you know, not, it's actually working pretty well. And B, it's not politically feasible to just redo the whole thing. I mean, you're not going to have individual accounts and social security, that's just not happening. You're not going to have a system where uh, we demand that every employer provides pensions to workers. That's a thing of the past. So the idea was, let's just take a very realistic look as far as what's possible, propose a series of tweaks, which collectively actually, you know, really change the retirement system. But this is designed to be overall politically realistic. Oh, and, um, uh, uh, can you um, uh, go? We, I'd like to go through some of those tweaks. I mean, in, in my mind's eye, when I think about retirement security and what it means uh, also for the federal budget, and because of course the government has to play a big role in, in providing that security, the real problem here is. Some degree social security, but that feels like a problem that can be solved relatively quickly. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. But really, it's Medicare and Medicaid that that's really where the crux of the matter is. Is that is that fair? Is that a fair characterization? Well, I think that it's a bit problematic that social security is now maybe more than a bit. Social security is projected to go bankrupt in 2033. And by bankrupt, they mean exhaust the trust fund. After 2033, Social Security, if there are no other changes made by Congress, can still pay out 77% of its promised benefits. Medicare, the trust fund for Medicare is expected to go become exhausted in 2031. And actually, I use the term bankrupt, and I probably shouldn't have. Uh, bankrupt sort of suggests that it can no longer operate. That's what we associate yeah. with the term bankrupt. I mean, it can operate. It's still paying out roughly 8% of benefits. For Medicare, 
Uh, the date is two years earlier, 2031, after which point it's projected to still pay out 89% of benefits. The disability insurance trust fund, which is more volatile, but that is on solid ground for the next 75 years as of today. Um, CBO in 2015 put out a report where they proposed 36 different um, reforms, tweaks, however you want to characterize them to Social Security. Many of these bought you five or 10 years just by themselves. I think almost none of them would be described as radical. And so with Social Security, I think you can get a series of sort of common sense, um, moderate reforms, which will buy you at least 10 or 15 years, which is which is progress. On Medicare, I mean, in the Biden budget, Biden added 25 years to solvency of the Medicare trust fund by addressing prescription drug price growth and by having a one percentage point increase in the payroll tax rate for upper income Americans. I mean, done. It's, it's you know, with those two reforms buys you an extra generation of solvency. So I think it's a matter more of congressional will than coming up with some sort of brilliant fix here. Um, but the real problem with this is the heart of the book. So if I wanted to characterize the American retirement system, it has two big characteristics. The first is that, as you mentioned, Mark, there are there's enormous government resources devoted towards uh, old age well-being. And that's a combination of Social Security, Medicare and about a third of Medicaid. Uh, the second is that we offer about two hundred. $50 billion in tax incentives every year for retirement saving. And about half of families take advantage of that throughout the course of their lives and accumulate enormous sums of money in retirement accounts. Um, we have $31 trillion today uh, in savings in retirement accounts. Uh, and then people, of course, have vast sums of wealth in their homes. Uh, it's very typical for older Americans not to have mortgages and have a fair amount of housing equity. So we have a system where you've got the government support, you've got a ton of resources, particularly across the top 60% of the income distribution, but we have no real way of translating all of those, all of that wealth into mm. security. And the biggest problem with retirement is that we have no idea how long we're going to live. And so you've got like a 60-year-old woman has about a one in 10 chance in dying in the next 10 years and has about a one in 10 chance of living past 95 and then an 80% chance. Like, how do you deal with that uncertainty? Yeah, right. It's impossible. And what people do is not, it's pretty yeah. rational is they just, they hold on to their assets really tight. Yep. Just in case, because no one wants to be 95 and poor. And that's a, and they're, you know, one, that's a problem because people can't enjoy their retirements because they're holding on to their assets. Two, it's a problem because people have to save so much during their working years and you know, sacrifice. There's really no way to sort of deal with this uncertainty. And there's other uncertainty. There's inflation. There's uh, market return. Uh, you know, if you own a home, there's lots of uncertainty in the price of the house. But it's it, there's just no real way of translating all that wealth into security. Yeah. Um, so so on social. Just to reiterate, just so I have it right, on social security, if we if we put social security over here and Medicare Medicaid over, or say Medicare over here. Uh, that's for uh, older Americans. Social Security, that seems like that can be largely solved by just uh, taxing uh, uh, earnings uh, above a certain level. So, uh, you know, right now the cap is, I think, $130,000, $140,000 a year. 
that rises every year. Uh, but if you start taxing folks that make over their earnings on over 400K, uh, that that really doesn't solve the problem forever, but it solves it for an extended period of time. Is that is that fair? Yeah. So you could, for example, I mean, what the Biden administration, what the Biden campaign proposal was, was we went ahead and said, we're going to raise a bunch of extra revenue by taxing wages over 400,000. Right now, you know, as you noted, the cap is 147,000. So for Social Security, you pay, you and your employer each pay 6.2% on any wages up to 147,000. And you pay zero on anything above that into the Social Security Trust Fund. Now, you know, economists generally think the full 12.4% is ultimately paid by workers mm -hmm. um, or most of it. But uh, now the share of wages that are taxed have been declining over time because wage growth has been going up more than uh, whatever the, the cap is indexed to inflation by. So initially we thought, look, about 90% of wages we covered now, I think it's in the low 80s. So one thing you could do is say, look, we just want 90% of wages to be covered. And whether that means rising the cap from 147,000 up to I don't know, 165 or something. Now that would violate a Biden campaign pledge where he said yeah. he wouldn't. So you could, what we did in the campaign was say, have his donut hole where you say, we're not going to touch 140, any, any wages between 147 and 400, but then we're going to go ahead and assess uh, the payroll tax on wages above 400. But you can also do things on the, on the benefit side. You can make tweaks on the benefit side as well. Um, but the point is, is it's not like you need to jack up the tax rate necessarily yeah. to get yourself out of this. Well, and I think when Social Security was put on the planet in the 30s, it was like 90% of earnings were being taxed. And as you mm -hmm. say, because of the skewing of the income and wealth distribution, in part, we're down to in the low 80s. So if we only, if you if you have that earnings above 400K being, having to pay the payroll tax, you get that back up to something closer to that 90% where we started off in the beginning of time. So, okay. Yeah. And on Medicare, just so I have that right, you're saying if we continue to reform prescription drug pricing, allow the government to negotiate with the uh, the prescri prescription drug companies over prices, and we have an additional 1%, you said 1% tax, did you say? Uh, I think, yeah, it was 1.2% increase. So Medicare is a little different. You pay a tax on all your wages in Medicare. There's no cap. Yeah. And so uh, the Biden budget, I believe, took it from 3.8% up to 5% as far as the tax rate on Medicare. Um, and then also allow the government to negotiate with more prescription uh, over more prescription drugs, which raised about 200 billion. And then there is also in the IRA a provision that said uh, if the if companies, if drug companies raise the cost of certain drugs too fast, they pay a rebate back to the government. And there was a, a modest, moderate expansion in, in that, I think, to more drugs that were subject to the rebate, or maybe the rebate got paid earlier. But the combination of these three different reforms, negotiation over prescription drugs, uh, more clawback of the rebate, and uh, boosting the tax rate on Medicare to 5%, Buys you an extra 25 years of solvency. 25 years. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Hey, Chris, any, any uh, thing you want to bring up here before we move on to the last topic at hand? Because the, 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 uh, this is already getting a little long in the tooth, but yeah. let's yeah. move on. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, modern uh, supply side theory. Now, did you come up with that name, Ben? So, uh, Secretary Yellen 
have got to say, I don't know if you know her. She's the most wonderful, brilliant person. I mean, um, I just loved working for her. And she was giving a speech at Davos. And early on, uh, there was a period in which I would do a lot of speech writing along with David Lipton, uh, who you probably know as well. And she was giving a speech to Davos and we had to pitch these different ideas. And, you know, the folks that were working on the speech, Dean Nassansi is also the chief of staff. We would usually come up with three different ideas, three or four different ideas. You'd have a half a page on each for a speech. And so we had put together, I had put together, you know, along with David and Deedam and, and other people, uh, different ideas. And one of them was progressive supply side economics. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she really liked the idea, but the name, uh, yeah. her husband, George Akerlof, said, you know yeah. what, you should make this modern supply side economics, which was 1000% right. Yeah. And so we we renamed it modern supply side economics. Um, and she gave this terrific speech. It ended up, I mean, because it- Can I say on the name, I, I particularly love it. Well, the way I thought about it was you were marrying this very conservative supply side theory with a very progressive modern monetary theory. <laughs> You're saying this is a this is a, a synthesis of the two. That's the way I took it. Is that is that wrong? Maybe that's what George intended. I mean, the oh, okay. way that I think about it was just it was just a contrast with traditional supply side economics. I see. Yeah. And say that both have the same the same objective, which is expanding productive capacity. Yeah. Basically making the, the economy's ability to produce greater but through very different routes. I mean, traditional supply side economics says you want ultra low tax rates on capital, which will generate more investment and also widespread deregulation. Modern supply side economics says we want to expand the labor force and we want to boost productivity through uh, largely through public sector investments. And we also want to uh, incorporate underutilized resources largely uh, people in communities that don't participate to their fullest, but they both have the same objective. It's just a very different way of getting there. Yeah. And so uh, my interpretation of modern supply side theory, and I thought the speech you gave at Davos was you know, very well articulated. It's just, I'm, I'm focused on, I'm not, I'm focused on the supply side of the economy, which made a lot of sense in the context of the shocks of the supply side we were experiencing, the pandemic and the Russian war and you know the years of lack of investment in in, in infrastructure and in the labor force, but we're this is instead of focusing on incenting through tax lower taxes, cap, the increase in capital uh, investment in capital, we're going to focus on, uh, on on labor and trying to improve the the productivity of labor and of course on public infrastructure. That's kind of sort of the idea. That's exactly right, and it's very much fitting with the the Joe Biden vision of the economy. Yeah, I mean, I think you know I. I uh, I was told he really liked her speech. Uh, I know that a lot of the cabinet had read it uh, and you see it incorporated even in speeches today. So, I mean, what I was surprised by was that it really kind of trolled people who've defended traditional supply side economics for so long. I mean, there's this Phil Graham op-ed in the op-ed in the Wall Street yeah. Journal. It wasn't intended to do so. I, I will say, I mean, it was not meant to be sort of thorn in the side of people who believe in traditional supply-side economics. But I think it really frustrated uh, a lot of folks, um, but that wasn't intentional. Right. Can I ask on the Trump tax cuts, have you seen any research that's come out to say, hey, this really worked in terms of lifting uh, investment longer term? I mean, the things that I haven't seen a whole lot, but what I've seen from IMF and from Brook Brookings would shed a lot of doubt on that. 
Has there been any academic research in that area? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there has been academic research. So okay. some people observed that there was an increase in investment. I mean, one of the unfortunate things about, there are a million unfortunate things about the pandemic. Uh, one of the less severe ones was that it didn't really allow us to study the full economic impact of the TCJA. We really did, you know, it was passed in 2017. We just had those two years and you have to discount anything that happens in investment on a macro scale. But if you look at those first two years, Bill Gale has a really nice summary of the research. Um, I think if you're getting anything beyond just observing that certain types of investment increased, uh, which of course would never meet an academic standard, you'd have to prove some sort of causal relationship. Once you get into the causal space, I, I really haven't seen any anything. anything. Yeah, I haven't seen anything either. Okay, uh, I wanna thank you. You've spent a boatload of time with us and I know uh, you got a lot of other things to do. Let's end the conversation this way, because um, I, I desperately like to know, do you think we're, we're going to be able to avoid a recession or not? You, you're Assistant Secretary of Economic Policy. You must have a view on that. So what do you think? Are we going to be able to navigate through? All right. So before we get to that, um, I've, I've wanted to inject this compliment to you and your team, and I should have done it at the beginning. But so yesterday I gave this talk, uh, the lunchtime talk, this NBER uh, group. Yeah, and and I my there's a bunch of academics, and basically the thrust of the argument was at the end was how they can be more impactful, and you know the lesson was like be more like Mark Zandi, oh, his team, and my right. point to them was was you you've got to be comfortable being forward looking, like you cannot just live in the past, mm -hmm. and academics do that, and I said you've got to have the courage to look forward, and I know it's uncomfortable. But this is what, if you want to impact the world, you have to do it. And and I said, it can't just be Moody's leading the charge on the economic Yes, it can be. Come on, man. <laughs> and, and the other thing I'll say is that you can't, I, I testified to the House Budget Committee on Wednesday and yeah. you, know, you came up. And when, when policymakers start talking about you in your absence, I think that's a real sign that, uh, that you're making an impact. So congrats to you. I know you're not doing it alone. You've got a great team. And uh, just Absolutely. want to check that. Well, you're very kind to say. So I see how he avoided that. Yeah, that's nice. So, so nice. A little, little political. Uh... Let, me, let me suck up to him and then I won't have to answer <laughs> No. So, on a, so I think that you have to think in, in probabilistic terms. I mean, I, I spent several years working for Bob Rubin. You've got to think. I mean, he thinks like in probabilities. I learned from him. And so, you know, I guess Goldman's at like 35% chance of recession, or they were in the, and then, and Larry Summers is at a 70. I think that's a reasonable range. I think you can reasonably be in there. If you're below 35 or if you're above 70, I think you're just misreading the data. Um, I'm closer to Goldman in part because you have, you have, US consumption has just been remarkably strong. You're not seeing real cracks uh, in the, in, in, uh, household balance sheets. You've got a labor market, which is red hot and shows no signs of stopping. And the hotness of a labor market allows people to continue to spend with a fair amount of confidence. You've got a housing market, which looks much healthier than it had in the past. You've got energy markets, which are not contributing to the volatility we've seen in the past. And we, you know, there was a world in which we thought the price of rent, we said this earlier, was $150 a barrel. Now, I mean, I used to check this five times a day. The last time I checked was in the 70s. Yeah, and so you've got kind of you kind of have the groundwork laid, and you also have a Fed that has ammunition to deal with fighting back at any. I mean, it can it can initiate rate cuts when it needs to. We're not at zero anymore. 
And so it's got 500 basis points of cutting that it can use to, to ensure a soft landing. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm more in the golden camp around 35% uh, chance of recession. I think it's certainly below 50, but, you know, there's always a chance. Well, all I have to say is thank you for the kind words. Uh, you're right. I have a fantastic team, but sometimes they can be wrong. They can be wrong. Uh, right, Chris? <laughs> Chris is more at the 70%. <laughs> Not quite I'm with 70, you. I'm with that's you. Certainly up there. Yeah. 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 You can come on sure. anytime you want. Sorry, Chris. Go ahead. No. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I think the probabilities are higher. There are a lot of good things going on, but uh, things can turn on a dime here. Uh, here, Ben. This is why I get so nervous because I, you know, I Chris and I've been working together for I don't know how long, and we we have these dollar bets every once in a while. I'll have to say I I have not won a single bet. Not one, not one bet. It's scary. So so what's the one thing, if we can take two minutes, what's the one thing you guys are looking at that you think will pretend that this most crystallizes your views around the likelihood of a recession? Uh, for me, uh, the single most important statistic is the conference board measure of consumer confidence. Back to your point about the consumer, because... Uh, at the end of the day, a recession is a loss of faith by consumers. They lose faith that they're going to hold on to their job and they, they run for the bunker. And uh, the conference board is much better, uh, much more prescient uh, historically than the University of Michigan for lots of different reasons we can't go into. But that's rock solid. And it's exactly equal to its long run average. But I, you know, I, I focus on that. If that starts falling sharply month two or three, Consumers are packing it in. They're running into the bunker. The, the firewall's coming down, and we're going in. But you know, right now, rock solid, rock solid. What about you, Chris? Yeah, Michigan came out this morning. Happened to to fall. What happened? What did it do? Fifty nine point two fell four over four points. Oh, it keeps falling. It's incredible. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Hmm. is that your? That doesn't fit your narrative. So let's. Uh, no, let's well, come, come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, fair. Anyway, Ben, it was it was really a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, incredible to have your insight and very thoughtful discussion. And uh, best of luck at uh, whatever your next endeavor is. But I can't wait to see it. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be great. So, thank you. It was a pleasure being on. Looking forward to it. Take care now. 